Good morning. Please be opening your Bibles to Matthew chapter 18. Matthew 18, verses 15 through 17. Last week we saw that according to Jesus, we are indeed our brother's keeper. When our brother sins, it's our duty. It's our obligation, our unshirkable responsibility to seek his repentance. The consequences of sin are catastrophic for the sinning little one and for the community of faith. You just look around and you see it everywhere, don't you? You see sin's wreckage everywhere you look. The undeniable curses of God lie in the unrepentant sinner's wake. Broken marriages, broken families, poverty, addiction, sickness, disease, and early graves are all the consequences of unrepentant sin. So when we see our brother in sin, love should propel us to action, shouldn't it? Last week we looked at the first step in our attempt to win our brother, and that is you, as an individual, just you, seeking your brother. Verse 15, if your brother sins, go and show him his fault in private, and if he listens to you, you've won your brother. We looked at four Ps there, didn't we? We looked at first you're to pursue them. It's an imperative, a command that you go, you get up, you depart, you get to moving. You see a sense of urgency, just to, even more so than if a sheep was to go astray, that you would want to go restore that one asset, that sheep to the fold. One of the father's little ones who he doesn't want to perish, you've got to get up and pursue him. Go. And as you go, but before you go, you've got to prepare yourself. You've got to be ready to show him his sin. To prepare, you've got to repent yourself. Get the beam out of your own eye so that you can see clearly to get the speck out of your brothers. But also, you've got to be able to make a biblical case. You're not telling him his sin, you're showing him from the scriptures, reasoning with him, persuading him of the seriousness of his actions. You're protecting his privacy. That this is not something that you're telling everybody else about. You're going to him and you and you alone are talking about it. You and him alone. And the prize at the end of this is that if he listens to you, you've won your brother. That, that this brother is valuable to the church and valuable to God. This morning we pick up where we left off. If he listens to you, you've won your brother. And that's exactly what we should expect. He's one of the father's little ones. He's humbled himself as a, as a small child, it says in verse 3. So we should expect with him having that low rank and being someone who's shown evidence of regeneration that he would hear you. We go expecting to be heard. And most of the time, one who has humbled himself as a little child, one who has adopted that low rank, will hear your plea when you humbly approach him about sin that you perceive in his life. But what do we do on that rare occasion when our brother doesn't listen? And that's what we see in verses 16 through 17. But if he doesn't listen to you, take one or two more with you, so that by the mouth of two or three witnesses every fact may be confirmed. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. 
And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. In verses 16 through 17, we see an escalation of urgency and action, progressing from seeking your brother alone, in verse 15, to seeking your brother with your brothers, and then ultimately shunning your so-called brother. We begin with this seeking your brother with your brothers in verse 16. But if he doesn't listen to you, Take one or two more with you, so that at the mouth of two or three witnesses every fact may be confirmed. And if he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. Although we expect to be heard by our brother, this text makes it clear that sometimes that will not be the case, right? If he doesn't listen. This word for listen here, akuo, where we get the word acoustics, right? If he doesn't pay attention, if he doesn't understand, if he doesn't obey what you're saying, if he doesn't heed your call... Sometimes your brother won't hear your concern. He might disregard you. He might not understand what you're saying. And sometimes that's on you. Maybe you weren't clear due to insufficient preparation. Or maybe you had clumsy presentation. Might not have been his problem. It could have been your problem that he didn't hear you. Or maybe you did a wonderful job, but your brother lacked the doctrinal foundation or the biblical knowledge to understand your argument. That's possible too, isn't it? At other times, he might have understood and just not been in a good mental, emotional, or spiritual place. At times, at times like that, he might know that you're right, but at that moment, he just isn't ready to repent. Let's be honest and humble here. Are there not times when we're more ready and able to receive critique and correction than we are at other times? Isn't that just true? Do you want to be written off by your brothers and sisters because they approached you at a time when you were at your worst? They tried one time, you, you just weren't in a good place, and now they're just done with you. Well, of course we wouldn't want that. And aren't we supposed to do unto others as we'd have them do unto us? We wouldn't want them to give up on us so quickly. So, and God commands that we don't. Our brother is to be too precious to us. So precious that seeking our brother with our brothers has two stages. We went alone, and now we have two stages of seeking our brother with our brothers. In stage one, we are seeking clarity. That's what everybody that's going is doing. They're seeking clarity. But if he doesn't listen to you, take one or two more with you, so that at the mouth of two or three witnesses, every fact may be confirmed. You perceived sin in your brother. You went just like Jesus said that you were supposed to. He commanded you to. You did it. You did the hard work to prepare your heart through repentance and biblical research. You obediently showed him his sin. Two imperatives down... But if you remember, there's five imperatives in these short three verses. More imperatives in these short three verses than there were in the 14 before that, isn't there? If he doesn't hear you, you're nowhere near done. We're commanded to enlarge the circle. Take one or two more with you. In step one, we kept the matter completely private, remember? Literally, between you and him alone. And now notice that you're still protecting the reputation of your brother by keeping the matter as private as possible. That's the key here. You're not to give a play-by-play of how your one-on-one meeting went with everybody you know. Well, I went and I I confronted, so I've seen it happen, you know? You just ain't going to believe what happened. I I went to Lee Bob, 
and I gently confronted him about how his daughter was going around everywhere dressed like a floozy tail, you know. And I mean, goodness, did you see how low cut that top was? And, and there's no way that her skirt passed the fingertip test, right? And, and, you know, some people don't have a lick of self-respect. Well, anyway, anyway, back to the point. I told him he needed to get her under control because no self-respecting man ought to let his daughter run around like that. And he had the audacity to tell me to shut up and mind my own business. Can you believe that? And then you go and tell everybody about that conversation you had. And then, you know, I, you know, I told all the guys at prayer last night, and none of them could believe it either. I'm, I'm exaggerating it for the sake of emphasis, but unfortunately, only slightly less egregious versions of that conversation happen far too often in far too many churches. And God forbid that that become the culture at Maynardville Fellowship. They'll go and tell everybody about the bad encounter they had. I confronted him about his sin. They tell everybody about the conversation about how everything, I said this and he said that, I said this and he said that. And then they'll say, All right, after they've told everybody in the whole church about it, okay, now I have to go tell two, get two guys, one or two more, to go with me and talk to them. No, it's not that you tell everybody, but you only get one or two to go talk about it. It's that you keep it as private as possible. That's the heart behind this. You're not trying to make your brother look bad. What's your goal? Your goal in step one was to win your brother. What's your goal in step two? To win your brother, right? Sometimes it's not... You, you, you might have done way better than this. Sometimes, right? Perhaps your temperament and your motive and your biblical case that you laid out was essentially flawless and your brother still didn't hear you. You still don't get to smear his name all over the church. You still only get to involve one... Or two more. And, and who should those people be? Well, no instruction is given in the text, is it? We, we can, however, apply some wisdom principles. Verse 15 tells us that our goal is to win our brother. So obviously we should choose people who this particular brother loves and respects. Doesn't that just make sense? We should choose someone with a level head and a calm demeanor. We should choose someone with discernment and the ability to think through things biblically and rationally. Your goal isn't to bring all your like-minded friends and pile on against this brother who none of y'all particularly like. It's to get people he respects and make a biblical case to him from the Scriptures with people he respects to give you the maximal chance to win him from his sin. That's your goal. If this brother is indeed in sin, then we must win him. His soul is precious to our Heavenly Father, and his soul must be precious to us. And this step doesn't actually assume guilt. It's intended to confirm the facts. That's what this is about. Isn't that what it says? So you, you are to enlarge the circle to confirm the facts. So that by the mouth of two or three witnesses, every fact may be confirmed. The word here for fact is rima. Often translated as word. It can mean word, statement, event, matter, or thing. That every word, statement, event, matter, or thing might be confirmed. Histema. It means fixed, agreed upon, put in place, set forth, established, confirmed. The idea is that this small group of men is getting together to figure out exactly what's going on. That's the goal. When the disciples heard Jesus' words, they knew immediately that he was referencing Old Testament evidentiary law. He's quoting from Deuteronomy 19.15. 
where it says, A single witness shall not rise up against a man on account of any iniquity or any sin which he has committed. On the evidence of two or three witnesses, a matter shall be confirmed. This text is cited again and again in the New Testament. You see it over and over again. Innocent until proven guilty isn't just an aspect of American jurisprudence. American jurisprudence adopted this concept because it's Scripture. You ever heard of the Me Too movement? How about the Church Too movement? Shamefully, the Me Too movement and the Church Too movement, America, American jurisprudence is healthier than the church is today. The Southern Baptist Convention jumped on board with this where they popularized slogans like Believe Women and Always Side with the Accuser. These anti-biblical slogans are wicked and pagan. You don't always believe the accuser. Not all accusers or witnesses are honest and upright. Just ask Joseph about Potiphar's wife, right? He could tell you about it, couldn't he? The following verses assume, after, after Deuteronomy 19.15, the following verses after that assume the existence of such malicious witnesses. And it details what Israel was to do in light of that possibility. Listen to what it says. Deuteronomy 19.16-19 If a malicious witness rises up against a man to accuse him of wrongdoing, then both the men who have the dispute shall stand before the Lord before the priests and the judges who will be in office in those days, these judges shall investigate thoroughly. That's, that's the key. These judges shall investigate thoroughly. And if the witness is a false witness, and he has accused his brother falsely, then you shall do to him just as he intended to do to his brother. Thus you shall purge the evil from among you. These brothers within the church are to serve as unbiased judges. We don't have judges today and priests today. You know why? Because we are, as the church, a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. And we all are endowed with the Holy Spirit of the living God. And we are the ones that are to investigate it. Whoever it is, whatever brothers you bring with you to involve in it, they are to investigate it thoroughly as the true Israel of God. And every rema, every event, matter, aspect of the situation is to be investigated thoroughly until there is a fixed, agreed-upon, established understanding of the situation. That's what you're aiming at. Let's get this right. Let's understand what's going on. Was the brother really in sin? Was he approached in the right spirit by the first brother that went to him alone? With, with the right motives by the brother confronting him? Does the accuser have an axe to grind? Was a solid biblical case presented by the brother who went alone? Does the brother being accused have a good defense for his actions? Is he living the way he's living with good biblical justification? Is this just a disagreement over whether, you know, over eating meat sacrificed to idols or whether to observe certain holy days or feast days or not, which the Bible says not to separate over and not to bind consciences over, right? All these questions and more need to be figured out and understood by all these witnesses before anything else is done. Again, pursuing corporate unity and holiness is hard work. The church is not to be a social club. It's to be the people of God pursuing unity and holiness together, corporately, until we arrive at maturity. Not just individually, but as a church, as churches becoming holy. The situation presented by Jesus is neat and tidy, isn't it? It
It assumes that every fact was able to be confirmed within this intimate group of three or four people. In Jesus' example, it's quickly and blatantly obvious to everyone involved that the accused brother is indeed in sin and simply refuses to listen. But things are seldom so easy. We've had to do church discipline several times over the years, haven't we? Without fail, it seems that the first meeting uncovers layers of issues with several members involved in disputes and disagreements. The following meeting clears up a few issues, but uncovers a few more. Sometimes after a meeting, things seem to be somewhat settled. At least nobody feels the need to pursue it any further. But then time passes, and what happens? New issues come up, related issues, and the same seemingly settled issues sometimes resurface again that you thought were behind you, and here they are again. You try to track those issues down and it leads to new accusations, new people who are involved with their own understanding of the events and sin issues at stake. Some of the involved people think the initial, initially accused party is wrong. Others think that the accused party is innocent and has actually been wronged himself. What are we doing? In this step, we're trying to get all the fact confirmed. Some people think both parties are partially right and partially wrong in a dispute. And often that's the case. Often more than one person needs to repent, right? Real life issues can get really messy, can't they? Haven't our issues been really messy? However, the principles here in this section apply even when it's not neat and tidy. The goal is to enlarge the circle enough with everyone involved there. Take one or two more, or as few as you can possibly keep it down to with you. If there's more people that are involved and more people, hey, no, this one knows about this, or I think this one did wrong, I did this because so-and-so did this, you've got to get everybody that's actually involved, not people that aren't involved, but the people who are involved, you've got to get them together. It's easy to present a lopsided narrative when all the parties are not in the room to challenge someone's perspective. So that's why it says what? It says, take two, one or two more, or as many as it takes, as many as are involved, as few as you can keep it to, but as many as you have to bring, take them with you and everybody get together. You know, you want to know who's going to be resistant to getting together? The person that doesn't want to be exposed. That's the case, isn't it, most of the time? They don't want to get together. Get as many as necessary, but as few as possible together. With everyone present, you're to make sure every fact is confirmed while at the same time attempting to protect all the reputations and relationships in the body. We desire repentance from all parties that are in need of it. We desire restoration of all the fissured relationships. That's what we want. And once it's all settled, we desire to continue growing together with every person involved once this ordeal is behind us. Often, this will happen once we enlarge the circle. In this initial step of seeking our brother in private, in the initial step of seeking our brother in private, it, it, it gives us the possible outcome of him hearing you and winning your brother. It's explicitly stated in step one. This time, though, it isn't explicitly stated, but it is implicitly assumed. If he hears this circle of believers and heeds their call to repent, then there's obviously no need to pursue it any further. Once again, if he hears you all together, you've won your brother. But sometimes things don't work out that way. 
and you have to proceed to stage two of seeking your brother with your brothers. We were seeking clarity, but now what are we seeking in stage two? We're seeking closure. If he refuses to listen to them, verse 17, tell it to the church. The time for pursuit is nearing its end. And it's time for something definitive to be done. This step is the desperate, last-ditch effort to bring this brother to repentance before he's formally removed from fellowship. Intense, dedicated pursuit of an unrepentant church member cannot and should not go on forever. For anyone who's ever been involved in formative or corrective church discipline, the process is painful and difficult. Amen? The stakes are so high. The soul of this man is in the balance. This man who you love, this man who you have counted as a brother, this man who you have shared experiences with is straying from the truth. He's in peril, no less than a lone sheep who has strayed from a flock without the shepherd. For as long as this pursuit lasts, it's emotionally draining. It's mentally and physically exhausting and it's spiritually soul-crushing. Can I get an amen for those that have been involved in it? A few observations need to be made here. You only go here, you only go to this point of telling it to the church in response to clear obstinance. There's an interest, there's an intensification here of the sinning brother's rebellion, obstinance, and his levinous attitude. He's rising up. He's puffed up with arrogance. There's an intensification of that clearly seen in the verses. Notice. You, might have, you, you read over it and you don't notice, but look at it. But if he doesn't listen to you, take one or two more with you in verse 16. Now, after you've enlarged the circle, if he refuses to listen to them. You see that? He doesn't listen in verse 15. I'm in verse 16, and he refuses to listen. That's, that's more obstinate, isn't it? See the obstinate in refusing to listen. He's dug his heels in. That's a dig your heels in kind of word. Uh, para akuo. The first word was akuo, doesn't listen. This is an intensified version of that. Ignoring, hearing without heeding, refusing to obey. It's one thing to disagree also with one man. He's, he's disagreeing with them. However many it is, whether it's one or two more or however many you had involved, he's refusing to listen to the collective voice of everybody involved. He's got his heels completely dug in. There could be personality conflicts, uh, difficulty in styles of communication, or questions regarding motives when it's one person, versus, one person versus another in a dispute about a matter of faith or practice. But when every involved person in the entire community of faith has gotten in, in, together and investigated everything thoroughly, and at the end, virtually all of them wind up at the same conclusion... It takes a special kind of prideful obstinance to stand against a united appeal of that sort. And that sort of obstinance must be addressed. We've seen it at Maynardville Fellowship where we got every man in, involved in a particular issue together. You know who you are. One particular one, I remember Cody, Brody, Jerry, Eddie, David, me getting together to pursue somebody. And some men in the conflict, and also the, the two men in the conflict, we all met together to investigate everything thoroughly, 
Coming in, all the men had different perspectives. Some of the men were closer to one side and some people were closer to people on the other side of the conflict. And they all held different opinions on how the issues at stake needed to be resolved. But by the end of the meeting, it was clear which man refused to listen. That's what we're talking about. They will not hear reason. Everyone else can be calm, but they are escalating. They're getting angry. They don't care what, you, what Scripture you're bringing. They don't care how, much, how passionately and humbly you plea with them. They don't care. They want, you know what they want? They want their way. They want to do what they want to do and they want to get what they want to get out of it. By the end of that meeting, it was clear which man refused to listen. It's unbiblical to take an issue before the church when the brother is faithfully attempting to work through the issue. You have to see this obstinance first. But when a man has become unreasonable, irrational, and unteachable, Jesus says the last recourse is the church. You have to tell it to the church. So we had to go ourselves, imperative one. We had to show him in private. Imperative two, we had to take one or two more with us. Imperative three, now we have to, imperative four, tell it to the church. It's no accident that Matthew's second and only other use of the word church comes immediately before the repetition of the concept of binding and loosing in Matthew 18. Look, look Matthew 18, 18, Truly I say to you, whatever you bind on earth shall be bound, what was bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be what was loosed in heaven. You remember earlier, turn back to Matthew 16, 18 through 19. Only two times that he mentions the word church in the whole book. But two, two mentions. One of them's in Matthew 16 and one of them's in Matthew 18. And they're, they're, everything in the middle of that's a big parenthesis that we're going to look at next week. But after Peter's great confession, Jesus said to Peter, You are Peter, and upon this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell will not overpower it. And I will give you the keys to the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth shall be what was bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be what was loosed in heaven. In Jewish circles, the word ecclesia, the word we translate church, was used for the assembly of the people of God. In the Septuagint, it always meant the national community of Israel in its totality. The Pharisees considered themselves in the synagogue system to be the true ecclesia. Actually, the word synagogue means an assembly of Jews, a place of assembly, a bringing together. That means the bringing together of the people who belong, those who are rightly a part of the community, and also a bringing together of the ideas of the people in that community. They're seeking unification around the law, their understanding of the law, and how will we live as the people of God. They decided what was binding and loosed upon consciences, what they were obligated to believe and to do, or free to believe and to do. They discussed what they rightly believed would lead them to reestablish the kingdom of God on the earth, to overthrow the Roman Empire, in order to create such a culture that would usher in the kingdom. They exercised the ministry of the keys and developed an ever-growing system of binding and loosing, known as the tradition of the elders. You've heard it said of them of old. Remember that the Holocaust. 
If someone rejected the tradition of the elders, they were put out of the synagogue. We'll delve into that more next week. But for now, we have to understand the radical claim that Jesus is making. He was establishing a new ecclesia, a His church. Upon this rock, I will build my church. This is a new community where the synagogue, bound and loosed wrongly, the church will get this right. They will be guided by the Spirit to judge rightly between the brethren. The recourse is to bring it before the whole church. Whatever you bind on earth will be what was bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth will be what was loosed in heaven. To refuse to listen to a true church is to reject the teaching of Jesus. I want to make a few observations here. First is about the public character of this one. The escalation of involved people continues at this stage, doesn't it? The first stage of rebuke, it's completely private. Remember, you and him alone. Remember that? The second stage is to be as private as possible while still being able to establish all the facts. But now all privacy is out the window. This stage is to be completely public. From completely private to completely public before the entire church. Where privacy was commanded, now privacy is forbidden. He commands you, imperative, tell it to the church once you run into this sort of obstinance. Tell is the fourth of five commands in these short verses. Jesus commands that both the sin and the sinning one response to his brother's united call to repentance be made public if you've ever wondered why that we're so transparent and public about these intimate, sensitive church discipline issues, then hopefully now you know why. The reason we are is because we don't make it a habit around here to disobey King Jesus. Say, so, but it's awfully awkward. Yeah, we don't care about awfully awkward. We care about doing what God says to do. That's what we care about. We don't do what feels right to us. We do what God says is right in His Word. That's what we do. We also need to point out that this refers to a particular congregation. Here's the, here the reference is clearly the absolute, is clearly and absolutely and necessarily the local church. Without the existence of the local church, you can't obey this. This isn't talking about the universal church. You can't. It, you, it's, you, it's, people like dismiss the idea of a local church when you can't read the Bible and not get that. To the saints at the church of Ephesus, to the saints at the church of Philippi, to the church, saints at the church of Corinth, to the saints at the church of Coloss, to submit to the elders that are among you. Shepherd the flock of God that is among you. It's local bodies that exist with real authority within the local churches. The universal church, all believers, regardless of time and location, cannot possibly be gathered together. They're not all alive at the same time, and they can't all be in the same place. I can't meet with believers that are in China to talk about Sean's sin. I don't know why I picked you. You're just the first person I saw. I can't do that. A church must have clear boundaries where we recognize who is and who is not a part of the local church. Just like the Jews of Jesus' day knew who was a part of the synagogue. And you could be put out of the synagogue. To be put out, you have to know who's in. You can't be put out unless you are in, but now you're out. There's a change, isn't there, in the relationship. 
2 Corinthians 2, 6 actually assumes this same thing where in 1 Corinthians somebody was put out of the church it was recommended that they be put out of the church they now have repented and Paul says sufficient for such a one is the punishment which was inflicted by the majority in order to have a majority you have to have, know how many you have that are part of something and then know you have the majority on your side right? only in the United States can you vote without knowing who is and who is not a part of this industry If a church doesn't have membership, then the church is not a true church. Mm. Oh, Matt, that's not nice. I don't care about being nice. I care about what the Scriptures teach us. Not a true church. If a church doesn't practice church discipline, regardless of how well-meaning that church might be, and there might be real believers that are in the church, if they don't do church discipline, they are not a true church. That's not unique to me. That's been said all the way since the Reformation. It's one of the marks of a true church is that they do church discipline. We cannot exercise the ministry of the keys. We cannot bind and loose. We cannot progress toward holiness without the recourse to the church with with defined boundaries. It's impossible. You ever wonder why the church is so powerless today? It's because the church isn't functioning like the Bible tells us that we're supposed to function. We don't do this. We can't do this because we've denied the existence even of membership itself. We can't delineate between who's in and who's out, who's one of us and who isn't without membership. Whether we choose to call it that or not, I don't care. But the the idea of it, in and out, has to be there. And lastly, pronouncement has to be communicated by the church. If he refuses to listen even to the church. So the church is ruling on something, right? They're they're, they're declaring something as right and wrong, as bound or loosed. And he won't what? Listen. A pronouncement is being made by the church collectively. The church is ruling on the issue. Its pronouncement is binding and authoritative. Jesus says so here, doesn't he? And in the next verse, Truly I say to you, whatever you bind on earth shall be what was bound in heaven. That's what he says. And whatever you loose on earth will be what was loosed in heaven. The church, a true church, carries with it the authority of heaven. Man, that sounds Roman Catholic. No, it sounds like Matthew chapter 18, verse 18. That's what it sounds like. Well, that's not how I like to think of it. Don't care. I like to believe what the Bible says and then do what it says. Don't you? If you refuse to hear the church on an issue, then you're either saying that you have more wisdom than all of the Spirit-filled brothers in the church combined. That's one thing you can be saying. I'm smarter than all y'all. Or you're saying that this local community is not a real church. Now, that may be the case. Martin Luther was excommunicated, wasn't he? By a false church. It may be the case that you're in a church that proves itself to be a false church. But you better be right if you're going to stand like that. It's a heavy thing to stand like that on your own, isn't it? It should be terrifying to you to stand that way. Because if you're wrong, your soul's at stake. Because you're standing against God Himself. Heaven is standing against you. What, is, what, what they bound on earth was what was bound in heaven and you're standing against it if you're wrong. Mm. 
This text assumes that the church is a genuine church. And we see the obstinance of this individually, I mean this individual, doubly highlighted here. First we have the refuses to listen again, if he refuses to listen even to the church. That, that word even quacks, uh, packs quite the punch, doesn't it? If this man refuses to listen to Jesus' entire ecclesia, if he refuses to listen to this community of people who Jesus said the gates of hell themselves had no chance of standing against, if he refuses to listen to this community of brothers to whom Jesus said he would give the keys to the kingdom of heaven, then the church has no choice. Whether his refusal to listen comes in the form of unilaterally breaking fellowship. We've had that a lot. We've not had where, where you meet here and everybody hears it out in front of the whole church and then you, the church rules and then they get to decide whether they'll hear or not. No, they don't let it go that far. They just get mad, refuse to talk about it anymore, and then go to so, such and such Baptist church down the road and never come back here anymore. Now, we can grant the letter if we want to be unbiblical, or we can say, no, we will not grant a letter. They are not leaving in good standing, and they are still under discipline. Whether or not they recognize that discipline or not doesn't matter. And we protect the other church when we do that. Why do we do it that way? Because we don't do what we want to do. We do what this book says. Amen? That's what we do. Either way, whether that they refuse to listen by refusing to even come back or they refuse to listen by coming back and then not hearing when the whole church stands against them, the church is to go from seeking to shunning the so-called brother. That's in verse 17b. Let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. Let him be to you is our fifth and final imperative or command in these verses. This is not optional, once again. Let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. We are to change how we view this person and how we treat this person. Let's handle those one at a time. A change in how we view the man. Just two short verses ago, what's this man called? In verse 15. He's called your brother, isn't he? If your brother sins. Remember the word from verse 16, Adelphos, literally one womb. The familial language imports a note of personal care. It's, it's been used repeatedly in the gospel to re refer to fellow disciples. You remember we pointed out that in Matthew 12, 48, Jesus strikingly uses it where he says, Who is my mother and who are my brothers? And stretching out his hand toward his disciples, he said, Behold, my brother, I mean my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of my Father who is in heaven, he is my brother and sister and mother. This person who has sinned has until this point been considered a brother. You had a familial obligation to him, a duty toward him. You were to count him as one of the father's little ones, and you were obligated, you had to continue pursuing him to keep him from perishing. But not anymore. Not anymore. He hasn't become low, of low rank like a little child. And Jesus says that if you don't become like one of these little children, that you won't enter the kingdom of heaven. They're showing that they are haughty in their spirit. They won't even hear. They're so arrogant that they won't hear the entire church. They don't have that heart posture. He says they're not, they're not 
they're not going to enter the kingdom. He's refused to receive the little ones who came to him and thus refused to receive Christ, it says in verse 5. If you receive, if you receive one of these little ones, you also receive me. So if you don't, you, receive, you refuse to receive Christ. You're, he, he's obviously stood up against and rebelled against the church, causing people to be offended. And if you offend them, it would be better than a millstone be hanged about your neck and you drowned in the depths of the sea. He's despised, thought little of, or disregarded the little ones who believe on Christ. He, he didn't care what they had to say. He said, see to it that you don't despise one of these little ones. You can no longer assume that he's your brother. And you're now to count him first as a Gentile. That's what it says, right? As a Gentile. The term Gentile was primarily used of non-Jews who held to their traditional paganism. Such a Gentile had no part in the covenant, no part in the worship of God, no part in the social life of the Jews. None. The term Gentile and tax collector were used by Jesus side by side. Remember in Matthew 5, 46-47, If you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? The tax collectors even do that. They, and they have no reward in heaven. That's what he's saying. If you greet your brothers only, what more are you doing? Do not even the Gentiles do the same? Same point he was making, didn't he? The Gentile and tax collector are representative of the ungodly. Gentiles function similarly in Matthew 6-7. When you are praying, do not use meaningless repetition as the Gentiles do. Those that are completely pagan. Those that aren't God's people. For they suppose that they'll be heard by their many words. This usage represents the traditional Jewish assumption of the superiority of the people of God. We are the people of God and they aren't. Jesus says that he who does the will of my Father is my brother. And by his obstinance, this man, who was once seen as a brother, is giving every indication that he is a tear amongst the wheat, that he is a goat amongst the sheep, that he is a bad fish that has been caught in the net when he needs to be tossed back. Let him be to you as a Gentile is pretty severe, but Jesus doesn't stop there. As a Gentile, and what else? A tax collector. A faithful Jew absolutely couldn't collect taxes for the Romans. Right? A tax gatherer was even more despised than the Gentiles were. It's an escalation. Not only is he like a Gentile, but even worse, he's a tax collector. He wasn't an outcast by birth, but by choice. He chose to leave the people of God. That's what it's saying. To collect taxes for the Romans was to compromise both their patriotism and their religion. A Roman tax collector had to swear his allegiance to Rome. And Rome, not his native land, not Israel, for the Jew, was thus his sworn first priority. In essence, to become a tax collector was to apostatize. Although such a man claimed to be the offspring of Abraham, although he claimed to be part of God's chosen people, he had completely, publicly, and shamelessly sold out. This marked a man as a traitor and a liar. He was ranked with robbers and murderers. A tax collector or publican couldn't even give testimony in a Jewish court. Why? Because he was no longer considered to be part of the Jewish ecclesia. That's why. Implied in this change in how we view the man is a change in how we treat the man. 
how did they treat, how did the Jews treat the Gentiles? Jews didn't associate with Gentiles. They wouldn't even go to their house. They believed that fellowship with such depraved people would pollute the people and community of God. After traveling through heathen territory, Jews had a custom of shaking the dust off their sandals and off their clothes before they re-entered the Holy Land. They were afraid that otherwise, uh, in their own country, Levitically clean objects might be rendered unclean by getting uh, Gentile dirt on them. And Jesus applies this custom to those who won't receive the apostles or heed their word. Turn, turn with me to Matthew 10, 5 through 7. When he sends out the apostles, he tells them, Do not go into the way of the Gentiles, and do not enter any city of the Samaritans, but rather go to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. And as you go, preach, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. You're announcing to these Jewish people that the kingdom of heaven is at hand. But pick up at verse 13. If the house is worthy, give it your blessing of peace. But if it's not worthy, take back your blessing of peace, the shalom of God. Don't wish that on them anymore. Whoever does not receive you, of these Jewish people, if they don't receive you or heed your words, as you go out of that house or city, shake the dust off from your feet. Surely I say to you, it will be more tolerable for the land of Sodom and Gomorrah, actual Gentile cities in the land of judgment, than for these Jewish cities who won't heed the words of the apostles. He's saying those are the true Gentiles that you should have nothing to do with. If someone will not heed the voice of the church, they are to be treated that way. Not Gentile, not some nationality. Not somebody who has a bad past. But somebody who's dug their heels in and obstinately will not listen to what God has bound in heaven. You are to have nothing to do with them. For the apostles to shake the dust off their feet while leaving a Jewish house or town would have been to publicly treat those Jews, the supposed people of God like Gentiles. It would have been a public demonstration. That was, my, that was a public statement right there, wasn't it? And it doesn't matter if it's Jew or Gentile alike. If they won't hear, that's how we're to treat them. To get away from them. They're dangerous to you and dangerous to the community of faith. That's how we're to view them. They're dangerous for your soul to be around them. Jesus is telling his followers to treat unwelcoming Jews as they would treat Gentiles. And we see exactly the same thing in the treatment of the tax collectors. The Jewish uh, scholar, historian, uh, Alfred Edersheim, wrote that a Jewish publican was barred from the synagogue and forbidden to have any religious or social contact with his fellow Jews. He was ranked with the unclean animals, which a devout Jew would not so much as touch. Just like how separation from a tax collector was even more extreme than separation from Gentiles, separation from an unrepentant professing believer is to be even more radical than separation from sinful unbelievers. Turn with me to 1 Corinthians 5. 1 Corinthians chapter 5. <clears throat> Here we have an account of a man who was living in 
blatant immorality and had been appealed to in chapter 4 to repent, but he refused. He actually flaunted his liberty, boasted in it, became arrogant and puffed up against the people who approached him. He refused to hear. In chapter 5, verse 1, we see what Paul said about this situation. It's actually reported that there's immorality among you and immorality of such a kind that does not exist even amongst the Gentiles, even amongst the complete unbelievers, the godless. That someone has his father's wife, you've become arrogant and not mourned instead so that the one who has done this deed would be removed from your midst. For I, on my part, though absent in body but present in spirit, have already judged him. You ever, you know, we can't judge people. You have to. I've already judged him who has committed this as though I were present. In the name of our Lord Jesus, when you are assembled, when you are assembled as a church, when the ecclesia comes together and this person is caught up in this sin and wouldn't hear, and I with you in spirit, with the authority of the Lord Jesus, appealing back to what we learned in Matthew chapter 18, I've decided to deliver such a one to Satan for the destruction of his flesh so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord Jesus He's hoping that by putting him out, distancing him, not counting him, not acting like everything's okay, that it will humble him and he'll actually really repent. Because if he doesn't, what's going to happen? Does sin have consequences? Of course it does. Your boasting is not good. Do you not know that a little leaven, if you have one person that, that cleaves to their freedom to do whatever they want and will argue against the entire church, a little leaven will leaven the whole lump. Everybody in the church will break out that way if you let a little of it happen. Clean out the old leaven. That one person that one person that's that way, clean them out so that you might be a new lump, just as in fact you are unleavened. If you don't do that, the whole church will become corrupt. You'll drag the dust in from the Gentile lands and make it unclean in the holy places. For Christ, our Passover has been sacrificed. Therefore, let us celebrate the feast, not with the old leaven, not with the leaven of malice and wickedness, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. People that really want to obey what God says, that's who we're supposed to celebrate the feast with, the table with. I wrote in my letter not to associate with immoral people, but I did not at all mean the immoral people of this world. You see what I'm saying? Not, it's not people that have never professed faith. That's not the big problem. I wrote, uh, or the covetous or swindlers or idolaters, then you'd have to go out of the world. You can't help it. You're going to have to interact with them some. But actually I wrote to you not to associate with any... What's it say in verse 11? Not to associate with any so-called brother. Shunning the so-called brother who refused to repent when the whole church collectively called him to that you are not to associate with any so-called brother if he's what? If he's an immoral person or covetous or an idolater or a reviler or a drunkard or a swindler. This whole list of things. If he's idolatrous, even if it's just an idolater, just holding on to some idolatrous thing that matters more to him than the people of God and God's Word, if that's it, and he digs his heels in, you're not to associate with him, not to even eat with such a one. I believe that is talking about the table and beyond that. For what do I have to do with judging outsiders? Do you not judge those that are within the church? Within the church, the church is to delineate. The church is to make this pronouncement. 
But those who are outside, God judges. Remove that wicked man from amongst yourself. You go on down to 1 Corinthians 6, 9 through 11. Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor effeminate, nor homosexuals, nor thieves, nor the covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you, but you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus and in the Spirit of our God. You can't have been all of these things. But if you want to hold on to and will not repent when confronted, you will not inherit the kingdom of God. And we are not supposed to act like you're going to. Concerning the unrepentant church members in the, in the epistles, we see the following con- commands. Do not associate with. Don't eat with such a one. Purge that evil man from among you. Keep away from. Have nothing to do with. So we're not talking about just restricting communion. That's just one part of it. They're to be cut off from all the benefits of the community of faith. He's telling a first century Jewish audience to treat unrepentant brothers and si- uh, professing brothers and sisters like a first century Jew would generally treat Gentiles and tax collectors. What's this look like practically? Applying this command can be difficult, not only because it hurts to hurt those that you love, but because it demands wisdom. Let me give six points that I thought about. The offender is to be removed from formal church membership within the church. That's step one. They're no longer counted as a member of the church. He's not welcome to participate in communion anymore. He may have been at the table before, but not anymore. He can't. We, I, we would lay across the elements before we'd let such a man take. He's not welcome to attend worship services unless it's to publicly repent and make acknowledgments. He can't just come and sit and act like everything. No, no. If he's not making acknowledgments and admitting his fault and repenting publicly and apologizing to the church, he can't come. He's not welcome to attend any sort of community group or Sunday school or class. Anything like that. Members are not to casually hang out with such a person. One or two members attempting to hang out with the sinner actually thwarts the whole process. You ruin it. The whole church is supposed to be standing against him and you're giving him fellowship. You're trying to starve out the sin and you're feeding it. It subverts the design of discipline, which is to produce repentance leading to reconciliation. That's the goal. 2 Thessalonians 3, 14-15 If anyone does not obey our instruction in this letter, take special note of that person and do not associate with him so that he will be put to shame. Yet don't regard him as an enemy, but admonish him. Admonish him as a brother. Say, hey, come back. Be restored. Become a bro- be, be a brother again. Far from being loving to ignore the process of discipline is actually profoundly unloving. It actually sacrifices the sinner's long-term holiness for their short-term happiness. What should we do when a member refuses to shun someone who's under formal discipline? Matthew 18, 15. If your brother sins, go to him and show him his fault in private. And if he listens, you've won your brother. Yes, that's what I'm saying. If he won't shun with the rest of the church... He's disobeying Jesus and we confront them about that and if they won't hear you, you bring one or two more and if they won't hear you, you put them under discipline as well. We failed in that once. 
And we will never fail at that again. Ever again. We cannot go against Scripture and expect to make any impact on the culture around us and to win anybody. Can't. We'll never do it again. Many of you know what we're talking about. We shouldn't have allowed it. And we can never allow it again. Amen. That's me, as one of your elders, repenting of my failure in leadership. I failed. And lastly, we can continue to call the disciplined member to repentance. Not to have fellowship or even social contact with the unrepentant brother does not exclude all contact. It's entirely appropriate to meet with, call, or to write this person as long as it's with the sole intention of calling him to repentance. It'd be wise to do so with the accountability, though, of other believers in the church, wouldn't it? Why? Because the temptation to the comfortable is great. It's very tempting to get together and then, because it's awkward, start warming up to them to alleviate the tension. You need accountability to make sure you don't do that. There should be no gathering together as if things are all good because they most certainly aren't. The man or the woman's soul is in danger. How in the world could you get together and joke around and hang out? It'd be like sitting down for coffee with a man with a severed artery. We're going to sit and drink coffee together. Well, you're bleeding out. Yeah, but let's just drink the coffee. It's that urgent. Do we believe what we say we believe? Do we believe this book? If we really believe the Scriptures, frivolously hanging out with such a man is morbid and obscene. Their soul's in danger. You all shooting the breeze. God forbid. Many consider discipline to be unloving. But I want to point out three things as we close. God's facts trump our feelings. It might feel wrong... But Christians mustn't be driven by feelings, but by submission to God's Word. Second, shunning is actually a form of seeking. You've tried seeking with your presence, and now you're seeking by the withdrawal of your presence. That's what this is. That's how we look at it. The goal is always that the person pursuing sin would be led to repentance. This again leads to the conclusion that the steps should be drastic. The discipline must be of a sufficient severity as to shock the system. It's shocking when we read that Paul handed someone over to Satan like it says in 1 Timothy 1.20. And it's shocking when we read that he commands the church in Corinth to do the same thing. But remember the goal. I've decided to deliver such a one to Satan for the destruction of the flesh. Why? So that his spirit may be saved on the day of the Lord Jesus. This is the method to maybe win them. We've got to love them enough to pursue them by shunning them. It's counterintuitive. But it's exactly what God's Word teaches. It brings them to shame. It breaks their haughty, arrogant spirit, their leavenous response. And it might bring them to repentance and restoration. It did in the case of the Corinthian man, didn't it? And that's always the goal. And lastly, discipline is inherently, because of this, it's inherently loving. No, we know that. Any good parent 
spanks their children. He who withholds his rod hates his son, but he who loves him disciplines him diligently. You spank your children because you love them. What God gave you as a tool of love was the rod. In the church, what He gave you as a tool of love is refusing them the table and shunning them. Keep putting them out of the church so that their spirit might be saved in the day of the Lord Jesus. To fail to discipline is to fail to love. So the feeling that this approach might be unloving is actually completely backwards. To not do it is unloving because it sacrifices someone's sanctification on the altar of their sin. Exactly what it does. Guys, this is a hard word. This is a hard word. But it's a necessary word because we've, we've, we've adopted in churches today this idea of easy believism. Oh, I believe in Jesus, so I'm going to heaven when I die. It's repentance toward God and faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. If you've not repented of your sin, you're not a Christian. Repentance is the other side of the coin of true faith. Faith without works is dead, being alone. So when we see somebody hardened in their sin, but they say, oh, how I love Jesus, you say, if you love Him, you keep His commandments. And you call them back. Guys, have you come short in any of these steps? I have. Ultimately, though, I have a repentant heart. And I say, God, I'm sorry. I've came short. Even in my best efforts, I've not completely lived up to this. I'm not in rebellion, though, Lord. I could never earn your favor by being good enough. But I trust, as I'm pursuing righteousness, as I have a repentant heart, a desire for obedience, I'm trusting in the one who did obey perfectly for me and died on my behalf. Trust in Christ. We trust in Christ. We point the, the unrepentant one to trust in Christ. And we trust in Christ the whole time. It is by grace alone, through faith alone, and Christ alone that we're saved. But true faith is never alone. Kind of gracious Heavenly Father, God, thank you so much for this word. Lord, we pray that we would incorporate it into our body, that we would be a holy people. Lord, that we would take sin seriously, that we would pursue our brother when he's in sin, that we would be prepared to go to them, to make a great appeal, to bring them back, and that you would grant uh, uh, soft, tender hearts, Lord, that very seldom would it ever progress past this first point, Lord. God, I pray that we don't give up if they don't listen, that we do exactly what your word says, that we broaden the circle, that we do protect their privacy, but that we investigate to make every word confirmed, that we get things right, that we call everyone involved to what your word actually says, and that if anybody is obstinate and won't hear what your word clearly says, that the testimony of everybody involved, that we would be bold enough to do, to actually humble enough, not bold enough, humble enough to do what you call us to do to tell it to the church, and then to let them be to us as Gentiles and as tax collectors. God, in the end, we, we pray that when we have to do this hard, difficult, soul-crushing thing, that you would cause it to bring restoration and repentance. Lord, we don't want it to end with severed relationships and unrepentant hearts. We want it to end in restored relationship, repentant hearts, and a holy people that shine as lights to the world around us, that the gates of hell would not prevail against us, that we would exercise the keys and unlock the kingdom. 
and that your will would be done on earth as it is in heaven. It's in Christ Jesus' name we pray. Amen.